0: Good. It's great to be here again. I really appreciate the opportunities I get every time to uh, come and share with you. Um, I really appreciate Dan's prayer for our pregnancy because I've never been particularly good at taking care of myself, much less someone else. So um, this should be a new experience for me to say the least. Um, Today, we will actually be doing Isaiah chapter seven and eight. It comes together, uh, the same historical situation. Uh, is underlying both chapters. They just kind of go together into one thing, so just makes sense to put them together and do one message, but since we're doing two chapters, it'll be twice as much time, so if you have lunch plans, you need to go ahead, text someone, cancel those. Uh, We'll be here for a while. I'm just kidding, obviously. Um, One time I was at a birthday party with a friend. I was probably 13 years old. Several of us were spending the night, um, and we were at his uncle's house because he had this basement full of like cool stuff, ping pong table, pool table and stuff, but his uncle was um, handicapped and couldn't do much. So he told us that night that the next day we were going to stack firewood and we all went, ha ha, that's funny. And the next day we stacked firewood. So sometimes when it seems like people are joking, they're really not, but I am really joking. We'll, we'll uh, try to get through this <clears throat> as quick as we can. So we're not going to um, read the whole thing. We're just going to kind of go through verse by verse. Uh, but first of all, we want to talk about the historical background of what is happening in chapters 7 and 8 of Isaiah, what, what's going on here. So 2 Chronicles chapter 28 is the most detailed account of what's happening in this, but um, 2 Kings chapter 16 also has a kind of abbreviated one. But what's happening is Ahaz is the king of the kingdom of Judah and uh, Israel and Syria have formed an alliance together. And the reason they did that is because uh, Assyria, this is always really confusing when you have Syria and Assyria in the same story over and over again. But Assyria is the most powerful kingdom in the world. They're very mighty. Uh, They're taking over lots of territory. So Syria and Israel come together in an alliance to kind of help each other against them. And they want Judah to be part of this alliance as well. But Judah refuses them. So since Judah refuses to be part of this alliance, the alliance attacks Judah, they besiege Jerusalem, they kill a lot of um, people in uh, Judah and uh, carry some captives away, but they don't truly defeat them. So the whole point was they wanted to come and take um, Ahaz off the throne, put like their own king on the throne so that they would join the alliance and help them fight against Assyria. So that is the historical situation that is underlying there and what happens is and what we see here that isaiah is going to speak into is ahaz has a choice to make and it's who he's going to trust for his deliverance and isaiah comes to him and tells him he has nothing to worry about but what ahaz does instead and you can see this in second chronicles is he strips the temple of all of its treasures. And he strips the palace of all of its treasures, and he sends them to the king of Assyria to buy their help instead. So he takes all these things that are dedicated to God, all these riches, and he even strips his own palace down. And what he does is he buys the help of man, even though God has told him that things will work in his favor. Um, And so we're going to see how that kind of uh, impacts us and what it means for us. So We'll just start uh, in chapter seven, kind of working through this uh, verse by verse and, and see what it says to us. So the first few verses of chapter seven of Isaiah say, in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin the king of Syria, and Pekah the son of Romalia, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. When the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. So anytime in the Bible, when you see Ephraim, they're talking about Israel, the northern kingdom. So when Ahaz hears that Syria and and Israel have came together to, to fight against them together, it says that he is scared so much that he shakes like the wind. So then God speaks to Isaiah. It says, and the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out to meet Ahaz, you and Sherejah, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. And say to him, be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands at the fierce anger of Rezin and uh, Syria and the son of Romalia. Because Syria with Ephraim and the son of Romalia has devised evil against you, saying, let us go up against Judah and terrify it, and let us conquer it for ourselves and set up the son of Tabeel as king in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord God, it shall not stand and it shall not come to pass. So what we see here is they are making this plan to come against Judah and conquer it. And Isaiah gets a word from God to go to Ahaz and tell him not to worry about it. It says in verse 7, it shall not stand and it shall not come to pass. So God gives Ahaz what should be confidence. He should be able to trust in him that God has this situation under control and that he doesn't need to do anything brash. He doesn't need to do anything desperate in order uh, to make this not happen. And what we're going to see is Ahaz pretty much completely ignores this message. But in verses eight and nine, Isaiah gives him even more confidence. And what verses eight and nine are, are a contrast between Judah and their enemies. So verse eight says, For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is resin. And within 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered from being a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Romalia. If you're not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. So what this is, this comparison between the two, you have Syria, and their capital city is Damascus, which is a meaningless city, and their king is Rezin, who is a nobody. You have Israel, whose capital city is Samaria, and their king is Pekah, the son of Romalia, who is also in this context, a nobody. And the reason why he tells them that is because Judah has Jerusalem as its capital city, which is God's chosen city, and a Davidic king on the throne, which is God's chosen king. So, what God wants Ahaz to know is these are all the advantages you have over your enemies. Your enemies are nobody. And there's actually kind of a little bit of a cut down, a little bit of a dig in these passages. After verse one, of chapter 7, when it says, Pekah, the son of Romalia, they never call him by name again. They just call him the son of Romalia, almost like, oh, I forgot his name. He's so unimportant that I forgot his name. So for the rest of the time, they don't even call him by his first name. But the second half of, chap- of verse 9 tells you, if you're not firm in faith, you will not be firm in all. And what God is telling Ahaz is, you can either trust in this message, You can either believe in me and trust me and put your faith in me to deliver you, or you will fall. That is the simple, after all of this, the simple point is, by the way, here's, I will deliver you if you will allow me to do so. And if you don't believe me, you will fall. So after that, um, we move into what Tahaz's response in verses 10 uh, and following. Verse 10 says, again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, ask a sign of the Lord, your God, let it be deep as shoal or high as heaven. So God comes to Ahaz and literally says, I want you to ask me for a sign. Like I will prove to you. And when he says deep as shoal or high as heaven, he's basically saying it can be as outlandish of a sign as you want it to be. Like I will stop the sun in the sky, if you want me to, in order to prove to you that I will be faithful. But Ahaz this response seems good on the surface, but we will see that his motives are not good. Verse twelve says, "But Ahaz said, "I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test." So Deuteronomy chapter six verse sixteen in the law says, "Do not test the Lord your God." And that's what Ahaz is kind of like pretending he's doing is he's not testing God. He's obeying God by not asking for a sign. but the problem is that God came to him and told him to ask for a sign. And the other issue is that Ahaz has a plan in his mind of how he's going to solve his problem already. Ahaz has a plan for what he's going to do to address this issue. So what he wants to do is execute that plan without worrying about what God has planned. So by not asking for a sign, Ahaz has given himself the opportunity to continue to do what he wants, which is the bribe and the treasure that he's going to send to the king of Assyria to buy their help. He's going to count on Assyria for deliverance. And that's his plan. That's been his plan the whole time. By asking God for a sign, having it be prove God's faithfulness, and then trusting in the Lord, he won't get to execute his own plan, which is what he wants to do. And what we have here is Ahaz falling just completely basically into unbelief. He has decided here, uh, made a very uh, like a turning point decision that he's going to trust in the power of man to deliver them from their troubles and not in God. So we have a big, a big change here in verse 13 with what Isaiah says. Verse 13. And he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? This is a really big point and a big change because Isaiah says that you weary my God. And the implication with him saying that to Ahaz is, It's my God, not yours. Like this decision that you've made to count on Assyria and depend on this Gentile king and kingdom and these pagans instead of depending on God. By making that decision, you have basically completely turned your back on God, and now he's not your God anymore. Isaiah says that you weary my God, not our God. He doesn't say, oh, you're, you're wearying our God. He says mine. So he's saying that Ahaz is completely turned away. Verse 14 is the sign of Emmanuel. And I'm not going to get too into detail with uh, the sign of Emmanuel this week because uh, chapter 9 really develops. So we have some Emmanuel in 7. We have some in chapter 8. But chapter 9 really develops the, the point. But uh, we will talk a little bit about it. Chapter, uh, verse 14 says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring you and upon your people and upon your father's house. Such days have not come since the day that Abraham departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. So we know that the ultimate fulfillment of the Emmanuel prophecy is Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Uh, Emmanuel means God with us. It is a confirmation that God is always with us. He's always with his people. And what's important here is when he's telling Ahaz this, is the implications and the consequences of what Ahaz is choosing to do. So historically, when Ahaz chooses to buy Assyria's help, he essentially makes himself a vassal kingdom to the Assyrians. Um, Ahaz never again has true sovereign power over his own country and neither will any other kings of Judah. They'll go from Assyrian domination to Babylonian domination to Persian domination. When we get to the period of Christ, they're under Roman domination. They never again have a true sovereign king on the throne, and... Jesus is the next real king that comes. It's just a line of puppet kings until they're destroyed by Babylon. Then there's no king on the throne at all. And then Jesus, Emmanuel, is the next true king. So by Israel or by Isaiah telling Ahaz this, he's saying, by the way, um, you have essentially given up your power and your kingdom and you'll never have it back again. So from that point forward, um, in the rest of chapter seven, it is um, a prophecy of calamity that's coming so verse 23 of chapter 7 says in that day every place where there used to be a thousand vines worth a thousand shekels of silver will become briars and thorns so he's saying you know you have bought deliverance for yourself and there may be temporary relief from your issues but the ultimate um, thing that will happen is this destruction this calamity nothing but just uh, darkness and desperation and that's where we get to chapter 8, um, and we really see um, Isaiah speak into this issue of what the consequences are of Ahaz choosing to uh, be practical instead of faith. And that is the issue, that's the main thing that we get from chapter 7, is that Ahaz decides to choose a practical approach to his problems and to his life instead of faith. In Second Chronicles 28, 22, It says, in the time of his distress, he became yet more faithless to the Lord. Is that what we do? It says, in the time of his distress, he became more faithless. When things are hard for us, when we have needs in our lives, when we have issues, when we need God's help more than ever, do we go to him in desperation? Do we go to the throne of grace and do we approach it with boldness? Do we cast our burdens on him? Or do we become yet more faithless? Because that's what Ahaz did. In Psalm 20, verse 7, that we had in our scripture reading this morning, it says, Some trust in chariots, some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. This is a difference between believers and people like Ahaz. So Ahaz literally trusted. This is for us, a lot of times, this is metaphorical trusting in chariots and horses, but Ahaz literally trusted in chariots and horses. He literally went for military deliverance instead of trusting God. Basically, he said, Thanks for the offer, but I have this under control. When Isaiah came to him and said, God said, By the way, don't worry, this will not prevail. I'm going to take care of you. Ahaz said, That's that's great. I appreciate it, but I have this under control. And that's what we can't do in our lives. We can't approach all of our problems as if I'm going to take care of it myself. And if things get really crazy, then I will approach the Lord. There's a Bible scholar who wrote, um a commentary on isaiah named j alec motier and he said about chapter seven the abiding truth of this passage is that faith in the lord and in his promises is a practical approach to life however great the crisis and this is something that modern christianity is kind of um put to the side a little bit it's almost like you hear do everything you can first and then pray about it later There's even been famous quotes that are like, do all you can and then pray instead of pray first, instead of going to the, to the Lord, our God first, instead of going to your creator first, it's do everything you possibly can. And if all the plans that you tried didn't work out, then you can go to the Lord. And that's not the way that God wants us to treat our lives and our problems and our situations. The truth is that you may solve your problem, but not as good as God had planned. Um, historically, Assyria comes in and conquers the alliance that's fighting against Judah. So it seems like on the surface that Ahaz's plan worked perfectly. But the problem is Assyria was always going to do that anyway. They were never going to stop taking territory. They were never going to stop coming and trying to conquer these kingdoms. They were going to do that anyway. And what Ahaz effectively did was sell himself to Assyria and give up his power forever. But it looks like he solved his problem, and we can do that a lot of times where we just attack it ourselves, and it seems like what we did was solve it, but we didn't know what God would have done, which is better. And that's what's different between us and between God is that he already knows what's going to happen in the future, and we don't. So he can solve our problems with every future scenario in mind and have it solved so much better than we ever could. I was... Leading a small group of young men this week and we were talking about this kind of situation, where you don't know what's behind this situation. And one young guy said um, he had applied for university a few years ago in Canada, and was really excited about going and and his visa got rejected and he didn't really understand why so he just kind of thought maybe it was a mistake and he uh, applied again, and he got rejected again. He was really down, and he was really, really just questioning God, like, what what happened? Like, why has this happened? Um, Why is my visa getting rejected? It doesn't make any sense at all. He said that at the time, his father was working in a different country. He and his mother were here, and a few weeks later, corona happened. Everything closed, and he spent You know, the two years of quarantine in Malaysia, uh, he and his mother together uh, because they were separated from his father and they couldn't get back together. And he said that he realized in that moment that had he gotten into university, he would have moved to Canada and they would have been the three of them in three different countries for at least two years, completely separated, not able to support each other at all. And he told me, he said in retrospect, I look at that and realize that God did that for a very good reason. Like my, my mother and I were able to stay together and to help each other get through the situation. That's what you have to realize is we get so mad. We're, oh, God doesn't understand. Why did God do this? Why did God, you know, affect me in this way? We don't know what's coming and he does. And that is why we have to trust him with our problems. So now we can move into verse or chapter eight. The first four verses, seem kind of complicated sometimes, but they're really just quite simple, and it's about Isaiah's son who's going to be a sign, and he's just a sign of, of timeline, basically. It says, then the Lord said to me, take a large tablet and write on it in common characters belonging to Maher Meher Hashbaz, and I will get reliable witnesses, Uriah the priest, and Zechariah the son of Jebrekiah, to attest for me. So what God wants Isaiah to do is to have a son, give him this crazy long name, which means speed, spoil, haste, booty. So it's like the, the first two words and the second two words kind of mean the same thing. Speed, spoil, haste, booty is what his name means. And all it means is that in this period of time that we're about to see, Israel and Syria are gonna, be con- are gonna be conquered. And I really love verse one because what God says is take a large tablet and write on it in common characters. He's like, write it really big and write it really simple so everybody can understand. This is a message for everyone Everyone needs to understand this. Um, so make it huge and make it simple to understand. So verse three says, and I went to the prophetess and she conceived and bore a son. Then the Lord said to me, call his name Ahershalah Hashbaz for before the boy knows how to cry, my father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be carried away before the king of Assyria. So really simple. It's kind of complicated. He's got a long name, but all he is is a sign that he will, it'll take about nine months for him to be born. It'll take about nine more months for him to be able to save mama and daddy. So in those 18 months, before that time comes, Syria and Israel will be defeated by Assyria. That's as, as simple as it is. This message is to the northern kingdom of Assyria and it or of Syria and it's Israel. There's too many kingdoms in this passage. And he's just saying, This is how soon you will be conquered. So starting in verse five, um, we have a little passage that is talking about how Israel rejected God, uh, the northern kingdom of Israel. So verse 5 says, The Lord spoke to me again, because this people, and that is Israel, because this people has refused the waters of Shiloh that flow gently and rejoice over Rezin and the son of Romalia. Therefore, behold, the Lord is bringing up against them the waters of the river, mighty and many, the king of Assyria and all his glory. And it will rise over all its channels and go over all its banks." So as we know, when the God's chosen people, Israel, established their monarchy, they were one kingdom for a while, didn't last very long, broke apart into two, and then you had southern kingdom of Judah, northern kingdom of Israel. And the northern kingdom of Israel has rejected everything that they once knew about God and about Yahweh, about the true worship of him. When it says they refused the waters of Shiloh, that's Jerusalem, so they refused God's chosen city, and now when it says they rejoice over Rezin, that is a pagan Gentile king. Like they have rejected God. They've rejected his chosen city. They've rejected his chosen king. And now they're rejoicing over Rezin, who is the king of Syria and the son of Romalia, their own king. So therefore, in chapter, in verse 7 there, therefore is usually a, a word that means something bad's coming. Therefore, behold, the Lord is bringing up against them the waters of the river mighty and many the king of Assyria. Because they've rejected their God and his chosen king and his chosen city, now they will be defeated. This is not a very big surprise, but what happens in verse eight is the consequences of Ahaz's decisions. It says, and it will sweep on into Judah. It will overflow and pass on, reaching even to the neck, and its outspread wings will fill the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. So what he's saying is, you, he's. this is back to talking to Ahaz, and it's basically like, hey, you're crazy if you think this is going to stop with them. Like, they're going to be defeated. Israel and Syria will be crushed by this empire, but you have lost your mind if you don't think that this is going to happen to you too. And Judah does eventually fall. They don't fall to Assyria because Babylon ends up coming in and being—it's almost— Back in this time in Bible history, it's like the flavor of the moment. There's like, you know, this huge kingdom that is so dominant, dominates the whole world, and it just changes all the time to a new one. But they end up falling to Judah, and there is nothing left. And it's God's way of saying, you think that you've solved your problem, but in reality, this will be coming your way as well. Chapters 9 and 10 give a little bit of hope to what will be left of a, a faithful remnant, some true believers left in this group of people. It says, and he's talking to the the countries that are waging war against them. It says, be broken, you peoples, and be shattered. Give ear, all you far countries. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Take counsel together, but it will come to nothing. Speak a word, but it will not stand, for God is with us. We get this Emmanuel theme again. It doesn't say Emmanuel this time, but it says God is with us. And it's saying all of these foreign countries can come up with all of these plans, and they can do all of these things to us, but in the end, they can't snuff out the true faith and the true remnant and the real believers and the real Yahweh worshipers that are left in this group of people. And that gets us into the last part of chapter 8, which is really kind of the crux of this passage and what we want to see. It is a comparison between the people in Judah that are god worshipers just in name and not really in deed. So verse starting in verse 11, uh, God starts telling Isaiah, here's the differences between people in Israel that just say, of course, we're from Judah and we live in Jerusalem. Of course, we follow God, but don't do the right things and people who truly follow God. It says, for the Lord spoke thus to me with his strong hand upon me and warned me not to walk in the way of this people. So when he says, don't walk in the way of this people, he's actually talking about his own people that surround him. God's telling him, all of these people around you who, you know, talk a big game and act like they worship me rightly, but really don't, don't walk in the way of those people. Verse 12, do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear and let him be your dread. And he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. So what we see here is some differences, some things that God tells him that they shouldn't have in common with people that don't truly worship him. Do not call conspiracy what they call conspiracy. Do not fear what they fear. Simply put, our worries and our fears are not the same as the ones of the world. If you truly trust in God's sovereignty and in God's goodness, and that God loves you and that God's going to take care of you, you don't worry about the same things that make other people stay up at night. You trust God that He has this, that He can take care of situations. Where I come from in the deep south of the United States, um, this is really big in politics. You, You can go to church and people will be. Like you think they're going to get like a stomach ulcer. They're so worried about who's going to win an election. And you just think, do you really think that the that human history and the outcome of everything in the world that God has planned is going to be affected by this? Like if it's one party and the other party gets elected, they think the world is going to end and vice versa. I mean, it's, it's unbelievable and they get really tore up about it. Um, in, in my v- version of English, we say "been out of shape. It just means really worried but they get really bent out of shape and they just are so worried about these these results of elections and things are going to happen. And what God tells us here is that we are to be different. We're not supposed to worry about that, the same things they do. We worry about lostness in the world. We worry about family members that don't know Christ as their savior. We worry about people that are in struggling situations like your your brothers in Sri Lanka that are are struggling really bad economically, things like that. You don't worry about these small things that are just bothering everyone else. It also tells us that our fear is in the Lord. And the reason why is because we trust him in every circumstance. When you act super worried and concerned and, and just overly concerned about situations in the world, you're basically conveying the point that you don't trust God that he has it in control. You trust you're, you're, conveying the point that you don't trust God in every circumstance or even in that circumstance. And verse 14 tells us that there's basically two possible reactions to, to God. Like people can react in basically two ways and it happens really quick. It says, and he, um, it says he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of israel a trap and a snare so he can either be your sanctuary or he can be your snare now those are the two things that god can be if you trust him with your life and if you don't trust him with your life he can be the sanctuary that you run to in a time of desperation and your time of need god can take care of you he can give you comfort he can ease your soul he can give you peace of mind he can be the sanctuary where you worship him and he can truly take care of you or he can be a stone of offense, a rock of stumbling, and a snare. And that is the choice that we have to make. Which one will it be for us? Our unanxious facing of life differentiates us from the other people. If you believe God's promises, you believe Romans eight twenty eight. You believe that God works all things for the goodness of those who believe in him and are called according to his purposes you believe those things. If you really think God is moving everything in human history towards the goodness of his people, then you can't be worried the same way that they are. Let him be your sanctuary and not your snare. So let's move on. The next few verses also talk about some characteristics of uh, true believers and the, the remnant of people and what they will be like. It says, bind up the testimony, seal the teaching among my disciples. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob and I will hope in him. So the first thing we get from verses 16 and 17 is that we meditate on and trust in God's word. It says, bind up the testimony and seal the teaching among my disciples. Bind up the testimony. We're gonna see a few times in these next few verses where Isaiah really drives home the point of the importance of God's word and us relying on it. And then verse 17 is about being patient. It's about being patient, but not the way we always think about it. It says, I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him. The Hebrew word they use here for wait actually combines two definitions of patient waiting with confident expecting. So patient waiting and confident expecting are coming together to make this word. So when he says they're patient, they're not just waiting, but they're confidently expecting God to act. There's a difference in those two things. A lot of you may be confidently or a lot of you may be patiently waiting for this sermon to end so that you can eat lunch, but you also confidently expect that it will end because you've been before and you know that we don't stay here all day. So there is a past experience that lets you know that eventually this will end. So you're not just hopelessly hoping, hopelessly hoping, that's kind of weird, but hopelessly hoping that that it ends when you don't know if it's going to. So what Isaiah is saying is um, when he says that he's patient and I will wait for the Lord, he's saying, I will wait knowing that God is going to act. There is a confident expectation that God will act. Skip down to verse 19. It says, and when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? To the teaching and to the testimony, if they will not speak according to his word, it is because they have no dawn. What we have here is we return to the theme of trusting in God's word and going to God's word first. So what they had in this time was these like psychics, the, the mediums and the necromancers, as they say, and they would go to the dead on behalf of the living. You would go to them and say, hey, ask the dead, the souls of the dead, if they have a message for me. Isaiah is really making fun of them. He says they chirp and mutter. And it says, basically, why would you inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? He says, and I love this declaration in verse 20 to the teaching and to the testimony. He is saying, when you need to know how to do something, you go to God's word. When you need to know, when you need a word, you go to God's word for that. When you need instruction in a situation, you go to God's word for that. You don't go to these other things. That the world always goes to to seek their answers. I don't know how many times in modern, you know, in, our, like we're, in the time we live in now, I don't know how many people go to these psychics, mediums, necromancers. It, it may be popular like an underground scene somewhere, but it's not real common. But we still go to otherworldly things for answers to our problems. We still go to all kinds of different, there's nothing in the world wrong with with therapy, going to professionals for help in situations is very important, but we don't need to always seek after those kinds of things first. First, see what God's word says about your situation. Go to it and see how it would have you address those things. There's one really uh, common reason why we don't do that all the time, and that is because we already know what God's word says and we don't like it uh god's word is full of a lot of difficult commands love your enemy pray for your enemy turn the other cheek go the extra mile if he asks for your tunic give him your cloak also it may be backwards um all of those things that it wants you to do you forgive because you've been forgiven um the best love is when a friend lays down his life for his friends there's a lot of things that it tells us to do that we're uncomfortable with and somebody may when you tell somebody about your situation i'm not really sure what i should do they will say well scripture says and you go Yeah, I know. That's what I was afraid of because we know what God wants us to do in a situation and it's difficult. And that's why a lot of the time we don't go to God's word first. We're like Ahaz. We had our own plan already in mind and we want to execute that plan. We're like, well, this is what I already planned on doing and that's what I want to do. And if I go to God's word and it says that I shouldn't do that, then I can't do that. And then it's just all complicated. So we don't go to God's word first. So he says, don't go to these other things. Go to the teaching and the testimony. And what it says in the second part of verse 20, if they will not speak according to his word, it is because they have no dawn. What he's saying is people who uh, don't go to God's word and they give this stuff, there is no hope outside of what the Lord has spoken. When he says they have no dawn, it means they have no hope. Outside of what God has given us in his word, there is no hope. If they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. So the last couple of verses are about the people who are choosing not to faithfully follow god and what will happen to them in comparison to this faithful remnant verses 21 and 22 they will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry and when they are hungry they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their god And turn their faces upward, and they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. So the people who choose not to listen to Isaiah's message, not obey God's word, not seek their refuge and their sanctuary in God, this is what's going to happen. And for them, historically, they will be carried away as exiles, and all of this will be really terrible. It gives us a couple of good images That when they're hungry, they'll be enraged. It says they'll speak contemptuously against their God and their king. They're going to be mad at their human leadership and their divine leadership. It says they will turn their faces upward. They'll look to the sky as if, why God? And then they will look to the earth and wonder why there's no help there either. But behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish. All they're going to have is doom and darkness and anguish and all of these bad things because they're past the point of no return. This whole section, you know, a huge part of your Bible is the books of the prophets. And they're all warning Israel and Judah and these other nations about the same things over and over again. And they tell them all they have to do is correct their ways and go back to God and none of this stuff will happen. They don't listen and all of the stuff that's been prophesied ends up happening. They all end up in these bad situations and it's because they waited too long and they let all of this judgment come upon their heads. And choosing the world in this way always leads to distress and disappointment. You can't put your hope in men. When it says that um, they will speak contentiously against their king and their God, they're mad because their human leadership let them down, and then they don't understand because they haven't been listening as to why God let them down. And when we put our hope in men, as Psalm 20 says, some people put their hope in And, you know, the horses and the chariots, when we do that, it always lets you down. Men will always fail you. The the structures of the world will always end up disappointing you, but God never will. There's one more thing we want to look at, seven little um, characteristics that this little passage gives us of how we should be different as Christ followers than the people around us. Our worries are different. We worry about different things than they worry about. Our fears are different. We're not scared about the same things that they're scared about. God is our sanctuary, not our snare. We come to him for comfort and peace. God's word is our guide. We go to him first. We let God's word dictate our life and tell us what we should do in our life. We have patient endurance with confident expectation. You're not just waiting aimlessly. You're waiting with an expectation that God is going to act. We go to God first before we do anything else, when we have something in our lives that needs to be addressed, we go to him first. We say, okay, this is a big decision we need to make. Let's pray about this first. Let's go to God's word first and see what it has to say. And then seventh, we do not despair because our hope is in God. These last two depressing verses, 21 and 22, are not about us if you have your faith in Christ. If you've never put your faith in Christ as your Lord and Savior, verses 22, 21 and 22 are about you. When it says they will be thrust into thick darkness, unfortunately, if you know Jesus is the only name given under heaven which by which people must be saved, if you've never trusted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, this is the future that you have, to be thrust into thick darkness. But luckily, everyone has a chance to respond to the gospel and to put their hope in Christ and have this these last two verses you can look at them and say luckily that's not about me and that's the beauty of this passage is as as depressing as the last two verses are they're not about the faithful remnant that still believe in god and they're not about the faithful followers of christ in the church today and that's what you need to remember let me pray real quick Dear Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much for this day that you've given us. We thank you for this opportunity, Lord, to just get into your word, Lord, to um, read Isaiah and to see just how many truths from this long ago you have still uh, let us have today, Lord. God, we ask you to just help us take your word, apply it to our lives, and let it impact us in everything we do in Christ's name we pray. Amen.